Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. You know, twice a year, we bring in transportation analyst Amit Mahotra of Deutsche Bank to talk about what he heard in the just completed earnings season. We're doing that again today. Just hang on, and Amit will be here in a few minutes. But as you know, we also talk about oil here. That's how we got our name for this podcast. And it's starting to become clear that drilling is something that isn't going to be taking place to the level that you would think a $75 Brent price might normally inspire. The last time prices were like this, the U.S. rig count was measured in the thousands. Now, it's not even 500. A lot of this has really come home recently for a variety of reasons. The one that really struck me this week is that BP, the old British Petroleum, reported very strong earnings for the quarter. Is it going to be using that money to drill for more oil? Nope. It's going to keep those expenditures in check. They made that quite clear. But it is increasing its dividend, and it is buying back shares. And that's great if you're a shareholder. But it isn't great for the world supply of oil in five, six, or seven years when the natural decline of existing fields and any increase in global oil demand requires new supply. Remember, world oil production generally declines about 7% a year just through depletion. So to stay even, the world's oil business needs to add that much new supply, and then on top of that, add some more to account for any growth. And right now, that is not happening. The research firm of Raymond James reported earlier this year that U.S. oil and gas producers are going to cut their capital spending in 2021 by about 8%. The firm said that the companies are, quote, extremely disciplined. Yes, really. That yes, really is a humorous reference to the fact that debt debt-strapped companies, or I should say debt-sustained companies that previously kept drilling any time the price rose, would say that they would be more disciplined to generate more free cash flow, and then they never actually implemented that discipline. The International Energy Agency said recently it expects that spending on new upstream oil projects this year will be 26% lower than it was two years ago. And that's with the price of oil up to about the price level of 2019. There is spending going on outside the U.S. The IEA said that there is increased spending going on by Chinese, Russian, and Middle East state oil companies, and it's expected to rise this year. But it's been the U.S. industry that powered the fall in oil prices that began in 2014 and stayed in check well below the $100 per barrel market, even up until today. Remember, that $100 back around, you know, eight, nine years ago, that price was sort of considered a fair price seen as not too high for consumers and offering a good return for drillers. But as U.S. output from the shale revolution continued to pace, the supply from the the shale overwhelmed demand and prices plummeted. It was welcome news to all consumers. What happens when that lack of investment today results in diminished supplies tomorrow? That is increasingly becoming a concern for those with long memories and long vision. Companies are worried today about sinking money into oil when the market for it is uncertain. What is going to be the penetration of electric vehicles? What do investors really want? Do they want to get paid now or later? Will ESG principles punish those companies that remain deep into fossil fuels? Oil company earnings compared to last year are up hundreds of percentage points. Meanwhile, shares in a lot of these companies in the last 52 weeks might be up 30 to 40% for some companies that are doing well. At a recent Nigerian oil summit, the prediction was made that oil might reach $200 per barrel over the medium term, driven almost exclusively by the lack of drilling now. Those seeds are being sown. This is bad news for truckers in two ways. First, obviously, the price of diesel. The second, though, is that work in the oil patch is not coming back anywhere near 
like one might expect, given the rise in oil prices. Work in the oil patch is generally highly lucrative, but looking to the past to get some idea of the level of work going forward won't help you much because we have a new reality. It's that time again. Every six months after earnings season is done, we are joined by Amit Mahotra, the head of transportation equity research at Deutsche Bank. And with all the earnings pretty much in the book now for the second quarter, he's joining us here to talk about some of the highlights and the lowlights. Amit, welcome back. Hey, John. Great to be with you again. So we'll just, you know, we'll just kind of uh, go here and there, here and there, because, you know, you covered a lot of companies. I listened to a lot of earnings calls. So I'm going to start with one where I was on the call and... um, and you actually were impressed enough that you put out a note in the middle of the call. I thought that was pretty amazing. And that's Saya. Uh, you you seemed very impressed with them. You 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 called it in your note one of the best earnings calls you had ever heard. Uh, the numbers were good. Um, I didn't I didn't know that they were so stupendous. But what do you really like in the Saya story? And what in that earnings call spurred you to to describe the company that way? Well, well, you know, in transportation and broader industrials. Um, investors and analysts tend to look at the sector through a very cyclical lens, which is completely understandable uh, given the cyclicality of, of cycles, <laughs> if that's even a term. But, but, I, but I would say this is that what we've tried to identify here at Deutsche Bank are companies that can potentially earn significantly more um, over the next several years structurally than what they're earning today. And SIA sticks out to us as the top of that list. And so we have written notes in the past where we can um, outline a, a pathway for earnings per share of over $20 for SIA relative to the 9 to $10 that they'll earn this year and relative to the 4 or $5 they earned um, a few years ago or a couple of years ago. And so SIA really stands out to us as a company that has massive opportunity with respect to structural earnings power over the next five years. And we think the CEO, Fritz, um, is, is really um, speaking to that quite confidently. And so uh, one of the reasons why we thought it was one of the most bullish conference calls that we've heard in a long time is because the CEO and CFO are really speaking to that opportunity, how tangible it is, how achievable it is, and, 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 and how the business itself is pivoting back to growth in terms of adding 10 to 15 service centers next year. And this is not a typical Northeast-like expansion that's going to come with a, a big fixed cost increase before revenues are going to absorb those costs. We think this expansion in 2022 is actually going to be um, quite immediately accretive to margins and earnings. And it's just going to serve to support this thesis that we've had that SIA can earn significantly more dollars per share in earnings power over the next five years than it has over the last five years. Yeah, they talked about the Northeast expansion, but they didn't. I got the sense almost that the Northeast expansion was, I won't say complete, but that it's so far along that their big growth opportunities are not just from doing more in the Northeast. Yeah, I mean, so so they've added 25 new service centers over the last several years in the Northeast. Uh, they've done that organically, which is which is quite commendable. And the problem with entering a new market or a new region is that, you know, you have to put up significant amount of upfront costs. Uh, you have to build it, if you will, before they come. And so essentially, uh, SIA spent the last you know, several years building it. Uh, during that period, there was a transition period associated with higher structural costs that um, they were backfilling with revenue to absorb. 
that's pretty much done right now. And you're seeing that in their operating ratio in the mid 80s in the most recent quarter. Now, the next phase of growth is just filling in uh, pockets in existing markets. So it's very different than the Northeast expansion in terms of actually just filling in existing markets where they already have infrastructure today in hopes to get more density and more revenue. And I think that's a much more different algorithm associated with um, with, with margins and accretion than, than expanding into a completely new region like, like it was in the Northeast. Is finding the space for an LTL expansion a really big issue? I know that there was some discussion on the call about whether, uh, you know, do, do, you, do you go out and buy a facility or build a facility, you know, maybe get, get land and, and buy a facility or, or buy a, a warehouse that's out there, or, you know, you just take lease some space in something that's, that's already existing. Is that a big issue in slowing expansion? Well, absolutely. I think that's an industry-wide issue. It's, it's negative in the sense that it's hard to grow the footprint of, a, of, of an LTL network, but it's also positive in the sense that it, it, it caps uh, supply and door capacity. I mean, you can measure LTL capacity many different ways. The, the first and foremost way is door capacity. And I think it's, it's undeniable if you look at the data over the last decade that the major public companies had, have had, had a difficult time increasing the number of doors partly in large part because of this real estate um, uh, barrier to entry. Real estate's not getting any cheaper. There's obviously a question of lease versus buy. Old Dominion has a very big competitive advantage in terms of owning a lot of all their service centers and being able to, to leverage that footprint. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a big barrier to entry. It's actually net positive for the industry in terms of limiting supply and, and, and having them, the industry participants able to continue you know, pulling on the pricing lever. Right. Those that have the capacity are in a strong position. So you mentioned uh, Old Dominion. They had a uh, tremendous quarter. Uh, the Their OR was in the sort of low, mid-70s, I believe. Low 70s. And low 70s, right. Yeah. And uh, I know I tweeted about it and I referred to them as a railroad on wheels. Of course, I, then I realized later that railroads have wheels too. So I'll say railroads on time. <laughs> But um, it seems like the gap between LTL ORs that were there for the quarter, not ju- not, you know, not not just not just uh, Old Dominion and truckload ORs, it seems that that continued to widen. I mean, I don't know if you've done any research on what is a normal spread between the two, but whatever it is, I'm I'm getting the sense that it's starting to really blow apart. Uh, is that the case? Do you see that? Well, well, yes and no. I, I would say that um, you know. Um, all the LTL companies, um, whether it's XPO or, or SIA or Old Dominion, they all posted record operating ratios. I mean, SIA and XPO posted their best operating ratio in the history of the company. And Old Dominion, of course, did as well. Um, and so, so I actually, I, I agree that the, 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 the gaps are, are, have, have widened a little bit, but I actually don't think that's a negative thing. I think that tells the, the underperformers, so to speak, if I can call SIA and XPO underperformers, which I don't think they are, but it, that the bellwether in the space, which is Old Dominion for LTL and maybe even Knight Swift for TL, is, is a testament to what's achievable in this industry. And let's be clear, there's really no structural difference between XPO, SIA, and Old Dominion and, and, and Werner and, and, and Knight. There are some nuances in terms of how Old Dominion, um, um, you know, approaches purchase transportation or, or line haul and, and own versus leased. And so there are some differences that maybe explain a few hundred basis points of structural relative 
um, margin difference. But when I look at what OD and Knight Swift are putting up, what it tells me is, is that what's possible for Saya and XPO relative to where they are today and what, what makes us actually so bullish on those names. And same goes for Werner. Werner has a 65% of their fleet is dedicated. That's a very different business than irregular route over the road trucking. And, and so uh, there are nuanced differences. But what Werner has been able to accomplish in the confines of a less volatile dedicated business is absolutely commendable. Low 80s OR, including dedicated. I think that's really impressive. And so um, I look at I look at the best performers as guideposts of what's possible. And that informs my bullishness or or criticism for companies that are operating significantly under that. Well, you talked about Night Swift. We were talking about LTL. And of course, during the quarter was the uh, Night Swift deal to buy uh, AAA Cooper. Uh, and does it, does that, is that starting to look even better, like just a great deal? And how do you think the merger of an LTL carrier into a truckload company is going to work out? Well, it's it's a great deal in the sense that, you know, you have a really good management team in the form of Knight Swift that has a proven track record of making very difficult integrations. You know, Swift, even though Swift was a truckload company, um, they had significant um, challenges associated with integrating that business, primarily around driver retainment, uh, given the different standards that Knight and Swift had on driver recruitment. And, and I think they, 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 they really showed the market. It took some time, but they showed the market that they fixed the Swift business um, to now where Swift margins are actually, Swift truckload margins are actually higher than Knight truckload margins. They are not integrating. AAA in the in the traditional way of integrating. In fact, they're letting AAA be their own company. Um, you know, they have the same leader, the same management team, they have the same brand. They're staying in in Alabama, and so I think that you know um, the night acquisition of AAA is less about you know uh, squeezing synergies out, whether it's cost synergies or revenue synergies. I think those are there. But but it's really about a pivot on the on the on, on on behalf of the night management team to enter a segment of the trucking market that is is it gets more credit um, from an earnings capitalization perspective and, and it's just a better neighborhood like I've said to your to your to your fellow freight waves colleagues uh, night is entering a better neighborhood you know LTL is the Beverly Hills of trucking we said and we stand by that now the question is. It's only about 10 to 15% of their earnings base right now. So I don't want to oversell Knight in LTL today. It's a small piece of the business. My hope and, and, and our hope here at Deutsche Bank is that two or three years from now, LTL earnings can be 40, 50% of Knight's contribution uh, to their profits, not just 14, you know, 14, 15%. But are there synergies if there's if, if, if you're a truckload carrier and you've got an LTL division or a subsidiary or whatever, is there anything you can do that is helps the the truckload business that you couldn't do without it. I mean, is there is there any way to even even if you're not going to merge the two together and you're going to keep it separate, like you said? But are there some things you can do now that maybe you couldn't do before? Absolutely, and and you know, um, I think I think both on the cost side and very specifically on the revenue side. On the cost side, as we've said in the past. You know, uh, the the second uh, biggest cost item or uh, in, in an LTL company is is purchase transportation. I mean, if you look at Old Dominion, if you look at Staya today, um, 
purchase transportation costs as a percentage of total revenue has never been higher. And so having that in-house truckload capacity, national truckload capacity, is probably beneficial in a market where truckload capacity is incredibly tight. So I think that, that that's one source of maybe cost synergies. Um, on the revenue side, um, you know, we think that the, the industrial versus consumer overlap is actually quite beneficial. So when, when you have seasonality in, in, on the retail side, January, February, uh, demand dries up relative to peak season, having that industrial demand output sitting in an LTL network is also quite, quite beneficial. The other thing I would just say, John, too, is, is that public companies like Night Swift, Night Swift are a continuous improvement company, um, whereas private companies sometimes don't go after every dollar on the, on the table. And so we think there's an opportunity for Knight to apply some of the pricing discipline that they have to a private enterprise and realize the full benefits. And we think that may be missed by the market where AAA, great company, very good company, very well-regarded company, but probably was leaving some money on the table um, uh, from a pricing perspective that we think Knight now is, uh, can go after and, and actually you know, you realize the full potential there. All right. So we've talked about all the good things. Let's talk about whether there was anybody out there, whether it's in the truckload business or rail business, because you do rails as well, of course. Anybody really disappoint you? Well, disappointment is a relative term. <laughs> I would say that if you just step back for a second, you know, the results across the board were very, very strong um, on an absolute basis. Of course, expectations are high. Um, you have to be living under a rock to, to not understand the, the, the strength of the truckload cycle today and, and generally the pricing environment that, that a lot of the transportation logistics companies are operating under. And so relative to expectations, I would say there were a few disappointments. I mean, Kansas City Southern was one of the first rail companies to actually the first company to report. And I would say their results were underwhelming. Um, they converted less than 50% of their revenue growth to profit growth. I think they um, they have some specific challenges associated with some cross-border uh, congestion. But generally speaking, they had to lower their guidance. And, and so at the end of the day, I would say that was a little bit of a disappointment. J.B. Hunt, J.B. Hunt's obviously a very well-run company, um, but they're dealing with incredible congestion issues at the moment. So their incremental margins were, you know, 12, 13%, which is relatively low in an environment where pricing is so strong. So I think there's a lot of congestion out there, which is adding to a lot of costs. The hope is that that is transitory and, and companies can, can overcome that over time. And what's structural and what's sticky is, is the pricing environment and the pricing power. Um, but generally speaking, I would say that the congestion led to some disappointment. And then let's not leave out the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is UPS. <laughs> you know, UPS was uh, very disappointing. As, as someone, Deutsche Bank was an early um, backer of UPS prior to the, the, the start of the pandemic. We still believe in that story. But, um, but it's, 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 it's difficult to reconcile management's uh, guidance around the back half moderation in, in, um, in margins relative to first half when B2B continues to improve. Um, and, and so some of that may be conservatism, some of that may be idiosyncratic cost inflation, but I would say that was probably the biggest disappointment uh, coming out of this earnings season. All right, let's go back to truckload for a minute. Um, I know in the last month or two, it's been notable that a couple of truckload companies hit a 52-week low. I know Heartland did on one day. I think Martin might have on another day. I usually check those every day. 
Um, does the market know something we don't? Do they are they banking on truckload having to hit a peak? Well, I mean, so so um, you know, cyclical investing. Um, I would say that what you're talking about is kind of the perfect playbook for how cyclical should behave at different points in the cycle. And so, at the end of the day, you know, um, uh, the the uh, the as the earnings improve. Um, you know, those earnings get derated um, as, as we further progress to the cycle. And so um, I think I think the market is 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 right in that sense where the the earnings for these companies is unsustainably high at these levels. Uh, the question is, is that, you know, what does the other side look like? What does the other end look like? What are peak to trough earnings going to look like? How long can we stay at these levels? And that's why I think maybe there's some debate in the market. And so today, um, our view is, is that um, while we are at peak, we can stay at peak for a longer time than people think. And also peak to trough declines would imply that trough earnings are significantly higher than they have been in past cycles. And so we think truckload companies intrinsically are more valuable um, than, than they ever have been. The volatility in the peak to trough uh, earnings has not changed. But you're you're coming off a higher high, which would result in a higher low, and 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 unfortunately, the the, the equity values of companies are not getting that credit. Now, some of this could be is that, you know, the Heartland or some of these truckload companies are not necessarily investable uh, by a large swath of institutional investors. The market caps are small. The daily trading liquidity is limited, and so you're not really having that sticky shareholder capital base that maybe the LTLs enjoy or the rails enjoy. And that just leads to a lot of volatility. So the bottom line is, is that some of these truckload stocks, um, uh, there's just no bids for them because of where we are in the cycle. And that obviously limits the upside and equity value. Night, we're seeing some signs of life, so to speak, because they've shown a proactive pivot into LTL. We'll see if that has legs or not. The market's clearly debating that at the moment. But uh, but but if you're just a conventional truckload stock, it's it's really difficult to get the attention of institutional investors, um, given that cyclical dynamic that plays out every cycle. Most of the companies I looked at, their balance sheet looked very strong. Their cash numbers looked extremely good. Uh, and I'm wondering, is there time for some special dividends? Because, of course, the dividend yield for most of the truckload carriers that do pay a dividend is less than one percent. Uh, and but you know I I know we hear freight waves has written numerous stories about companies declaring special dividends. Do you think a few of them are on the way? Well, I don't know. Um, I mean, if, if your if your equity value is trading at a, a discount to its intrinsic value, um, however theoretical of an exercise that is, um, it probably doesn't make sense to um, take that take that surplus cash flow and dividend it out. As much as it is about you know buying back your own equity, um, the, the the problem with that, of course, is is that you know um, when when you when you buy your own equity and take shares off the market, and you're you're effectively decapitalizing the company, which impacts you know the the float and the trading parameters of it that we were just talking about. So I think I think surplus cash flow um, is a good problem to have. I don't really know. Uh, the, pre- the, the net present value of a dollar of dividend is a dollar. Uh, the net present value of a share repurchase could be more than that, depending on you know what discount you're buying it to intrinsic value. And then also there's a massive driver issue right now. And so you've seen some truckload companies you know flex some of their balance sheet muscle, if you will, to to buy other companies that, that where, where they can get a, you know drivers overnight. And we see Warner do that with ECM. And so generally, I think there's a lot of options 
Um, I would say the whole transportation sector generally probably runs with an underlevered balance sheet than they should. Um, you know, if we all lived in homes with no mortgages, we would have much smaller homes. <laughs> Certainly I would. Right, right. And, and, and so at the end of the day, there's a way to use debt and your balance sheet in a prudently conservative way where you're maximizing equity value. And I don't think the sector has gotten that message yet. And some of that could just be the, the conservative nature of these businesses, you know, their, their history, so to speak. Yeah, I look at the report every day from Moody's and S&P Global uh, to see if they moved any ratings. And uh, boy, finding a truckload carrier on there is a it's like finding a unicorn. Well, you know, debt 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 is not a bad four letter word. <laughs> I like to say too much debt could be, but 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 I would say that you know it's not just a a issue with 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 transportation and logistics companies. It's an issue across broad industrials. I mean, you have General Motors sitting at a twenty five billion dollar net cash position. If you look at multi-industry, chemical companies, uh, machinery companies, I mean, balance sheets are massively underlevered, even relative to the cyclicality of the sectors. And, you know, there is a there is an opportunity here for significant more equity value generation if some of these companies get a little bit more. Uh, we've seen the rail companies do this. I mean, over the last two or three years, rail companies have certainly went further out in their in, in, in their in their leverage profiles with the blessing of the credit rating agencies. We just haven't seen it in trucking and other other industrial verticals. I don't know if we will. Well, we could talk for a long time. We haven't even touched XBO. I'm sure you could go on that for about another 10 or 15 minutes. XP, XP what? Sorry. <laughs> and it's, you know, maybe, you know what? Maybe we'll catch each other up in six months because as as listeners know, Amitzan joins us every six months after earnings season. So we do want to thank Amit Mahotra of Deutsche Bank for joining us today here on Drill well, John, well, John, before we end, let me just say, though, you know, in six months from now, XPO shares will be a lot higher. So we should talk about it now, but XPO, GXO, incredibly well-positioned companies, and uh, and they continue to be so as well. I think the stocks are up probably 40% since I last came on, and I think they'll continue to enjoy more upside over the next several months. All right. Well, you heard it here first. So come back again in March, everybody. I guess it would be March. I think something like that. Yeah. Or, 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 or uh, uh, I'll come by anyway. whenever you call me, John, anytime. Right. <laughs> Thanks okay. a lot. All right. Anyway, we want to thank Amit for joining us here on Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is part of the Freightcast family of podcasts. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again.